You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Killen-Wade, and my guest today is Travis Smith. Uh, Travis, could you introduce yourself? Happy to, Arya. Uh, I'm Travis Smith. I am Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University, where I teach political theory. And I have just recently released the book, Superhero Ethics. Right. So, so that's uh, going to be the topic of our conversation today, superhero ethics. Um, so this is <laughs> an unusual book, I think, in conception. It's really interesting. Uh, it's for people who uh, grew up reading superhero comics or people who maybe just know who the characters are, because in the past 10 years or so, all these characters have entered the mainstream in a way they hadn't um, during my childhood or, or your childhood. Um, so... Uh, can you talk, can you kind of explain the uh, conceit of the book and also why you decided uh, that this was the book you want to write? Sure. So, right. Uh, uh, these characters, uh, especially in the last, I would say 18 years since X-Men came out in 2000, but especially in the last 10 years since uh, Robert Downey Jr. made Iron Man as big a pop culture phenomenon as a Luke Skywalker or a Harry Potter a character that uh, in my youth you had to be a comic book reader uh, to know much about. Uh, and so uh, the idea of superhero ethics is I, I, I took what I do at my day job, which is I, I teach uh, politi- politics, I teach uh, old books, uh, I try to uh, uh, communicate old ideas and old arguments to students in the 21st century in my classroom. And uh, part of the challenge is to make those ideas interesting and relevant. And so I often make recourse to a lot of examples from popular culture and uh, in order to try to illustrate the points and and make them more familiar. And thanks to the popularity of these movies, it's no longer the case that only the reclusive comic book collector uh, knows who these characters are. But even the cool kids know who these characters are and their stories now. And so among the various kinds of things, whether it's music or internet phenomena, uh, superhero stories can be among the things that are useful in order to teach my classes when I'm teaching ancient philosophy or modern philosophy, whatever. And uh, I thought, you know, I could, I, I, I could try to apply this more generally. So it's not just for the undergraduates in the classroom, but try to reach a general audience uh, of people out there. So this is a book that's not uh, a book by a scholar strictly for academics only. And it's not just for students. It's intended for general audiences. I uh, decided to focus on well-known, very popular, long-standing characters. The newest character I treat is Wolverine, who's still been around uh, since the 70s, uh, rather than uh, more obscure characters uh, where I would have had to engage in a lot of exposition and would have had to expect readers to have read, you know, 10,000 to 100,000 comic books to get it. Uh, instead, if you've got a passing familiarity with the movies, I wanted to make sure the book was accessible to you, uh, whether you're a real fan or just somebody who takes your children or your grandchildren to go see the movies. Uh, I wanted to write it in a way that uh, would uh, be familiar also when it came to the philosophical side of the book. So it wasn't, you know, strictly academic uh, 
discourse on ethics of a sort that you'd only find in a professional journal that uh, is, you know, Greek to most of us in our regular lives, but instead try to discuss these uh, philosophical subjects in a fashion that's also familiar to uh, the general public and try to combine these two things and try to make it a little bit fun along the way uh, while engaging in some cultural criticism and reflection on ourselves and uh, our society and the things we value and the kinds of people that we praise or the kind of people that we might wish we could be if only we were better or more powerful than we are. And uh, so I took advantage of the popularity of these characters now, uh, these movies, and uh, thought I'd use them to engage in the exercise of cultural criticism in, in a different way than a lot of the other books that try to do that in a more on-the-nose, direct fashion, dealing specifically with policy and politicians by name. Yeah, um, it's – so the, the kind of the um... – the structure of the book is set up in a way that, well, I guess you, you talk about it explicitly um, as kind of like the, you know, kids in the schoolyard would say, like, you know, is, would Spider-Man beat Batman and argue it back and forth? And um, then there's also this comic book cliche that, like, the first time two superheroes meet, they fight each other through a misunderstanding of some sort before they realize, oh, we're on the same side and we should team up to fight the bad guys. So, so it's arranged in um, five uh, head-to-head uh, battles between different su- different superheroes. I'll I'll just read the the read off the um the matchups. So you have um, the Hulk versus Wolverine, Green Lantern versus Iron Man, Batman versus Spider Man, Captain America versus Mister Fantastic, and Thor versus Superman. Um, so yeah, so how did you so how did you decide which ones you wanted to focus on, and how did you decide who should who should be matched up in a battle an ethical battle against the, another character? Right. Well, it takes a few years to put a book together. And so at the time I was assembling uh, the structure of the book, I was thinking about which characters had been made more popular by recent movies. I wanted to make sure that the characters I was I was dealing with were familiar. Uh, so that was sort of a first measure. A second measure was I had to be able to identify in them some core ethical problem or some uh, feature of the human condition that that character dealt with or spoke to in a very distinctive fashion. And that meant I had to avoid uh, overlap uh, by picking characters that, you know, more or less sent the same message or too similar a message or had the same problems or fought the same fights, uh, ethically speaking. Um and then, however, I, I decided I wanted to pair them up in a way so that in the pairs that I selected, they still shared enough in common that pairing them up meant that they were dealing with some part of the human condition uh, uh, that they shared common, but in different ways. Uh, so that I started, as you pointed out, by looking at uh, Hulk and Wolverine and uh, looked at them as characters who are best known for their animality or their uh, being uh, like beasts, uh, because that's something that we human beings are. We're, we're animals, and our animalistic tendencies are, are part of who we are, and civilization strives to keep those in check. Uh, but uh, they're, they're undeniably part of us, and maybe it's not altogether bad, right? Uh, but it's a matter of how do we deal with it, and how do we make use of that part of us? Uh, and so Hulk and Wolverine addressed that. And then I looked at 
uh, uh, us all the way to the last chapter, uh, Superman and Thor, who are godlike characters. And so in classical ethics, human beings are identified as being the sort of the most divine of, of the beings in this world or most like the divine or akin to the divine. And there's different traditions that identify human beings as special in this way. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll ascend to that aspect of or that claim that human beings often make regarding themselves that either they have something divine about themselves or that they have special favor from the divine and look at characters that uh, were, were uh, most like that and worked our, worked our way through different parts of the human condition along the way. Yeah, I, I think I guess I only realized this looking at the table of contents after finishing it that you have a kind of going from the the lower parts of human nature to the the highest with uh, the godlike um, superheroes. Um, yeah, it was hard. I mean, as a as a longtime comic book reader, it was hard making these choices. It would be a totally different book if it was Travis Smith's favorite character. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and Captain Marvel, whose movie is coming out next spring, would be in there and would win because she's my favorite. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the trailer, uh, the second trailer just uh, just dropped <laughs> last night. I have to find <laughs> it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and and so yeah, it would be a totally different book if it was my favorite characters. Uh, um, but uh, you know, I, I wanted to establish some critical distance from the characters. I didn't want to write three cheers, hurrah, hurrah, for the ones that I love the most. Um, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to, as I said, think critically about ourselves, our society, our values, myself, uh, and why I like these characters and whether I should or whether we should like them so much as we do. And so uh, that forced me to uh, uh, you know, approach characters that weren't my favorite and give them the most generous reading I could, learn more about them and try to understand why it is that even if they're not my favorite, why are they, why are they so beloved? Uh, and at the same time, I took some characters that I, I did uh, I do enjoy and have enjoyed the most over the course of my my, my comic book fandom, uh, and I and I decided, you know, are they are they uh, are they so admirable? Should I really root for them? Should I find their stories so uh, uh, inspiring? Or actually, uh, might might we be better off by uh, calling into question what makes them so attractive and appealing? Um, so this will be a detour into comic book nerd uh, questions for this for this one, which is uh, the classic DC versus Marvel. Um, so I, I'm going to guess you were a Marvel kid. Would that be right? No, my I'm probably about fifty fifty. Oh, really? Okay. When I, I when, let's say forty five forty five plus other publishers, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I I, I started reading in the uh, early nineties. Um, and that was more of a Marvel heyday, and those characters appealed to me more. And um, for people who d- don't read comics, um, DC is the older comic book company, and its characters include Batman, Superman, The Flash, Aquaman, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, Green Lantern in here. And then Marvel is, uh, the you know, I did an episode about uh, Stan Lee uh, just a couple weeks ago after his death, and uh, his most famous characters are Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, Spider-Man, um, and and the X-Men. So the the kind of tr- the standard understanding of the difference between them is that like the DC the, the Marvel characters inst- like introduced like more uh, humanism into the idea of the like into the superhero genre, and um, all these characters had uh, realistic flaws, 
in a way that the DC characters didn't. So Superman's flaw is kryptonite. Um, so that's like, you could say that's a metaphor for different things, but like, you know, uh, that's not like the same kind of flaw that uh, the Hulk has, which is like uh, anger, you know, uh, turns him into a monster. Or uh, Spider-Man has this flaw of, uh, you know, like self-doubt and, you know, feeling like he uh, he could have stopped his Uncle Ben's death and he didn't. So he always, um, you know, has that like psychic wound in his personality. Um, and so how did you approach that kind of thing? Um, did you see any difference between... Uh, you know, you have what you have. I might count three DC seven um, Marvel in here. How, how did you decide to split it up? Right. Why, why is the Why is the Flash not not in here? Um, right, and, and I did decide to focus on characters that were in the movies at the time, and Flash hadn't yet made that uh, appearance in the Justice League film that we might wish we could forget about. Um, Yet, although the television series, which I've I've seen a good portion of, has done a pretty good job of getting what the Flash character represents. Um, and, right, I mean, uh, DC has uh, not been having the same success that Marvel has at translating their properties into uh, successful film features. Uh, the one uh, preeminent uh, DC character that unfortunately was left out in the book, her movie hadn't been sort of uh, announced yet when uh, I sort of assembled and determined uh, the structure of the book is Wonder Woman. Uh, I do end up making mention of Wonder Woman a couple of times in the book, uh, regretting that she's not included. Uh, I do remark that I think she's actually more divine than Superman. And so uh, I think if I were to pick a character I'd uh, pair her against, I would have had to include a chapter of Wonder Woman versus Silver Surfer, who's more divine than Thor. Um, but then I'm going to characters that are godlike, to characters who are actually, uh, you know, uh, divine, in an even more literal and on the nose way. I mean, uh, you read the early Silver Surfer comic books, and there's uh, the metaphor is 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 is, is uh, uh, thinly veiled. Um, uh, I'm actually currently trying to write a sort of bonus chapter article on uh, Wonder Woman combined with Black Panther, however, uh, taking the angle that those two characters teach us something about the problem of privilege. Uh, Wonder Woman being a princess from Paradise Island, uh, Black Panther being a king from sort of a uh, perfect, uh, near perfect society, harmonious society that's been hidden away and and uh, kept protected uh, from the rest of the uh, contaminating factors in the world, uh, both represent uh, characters who almost represent the heights of uh, privilege. And so they represent uh, interesting studies of what it means to um, uh, to use your privilege well, let's say. Uh, they, they illustrate that privilege in and of itself isn't the problem and inherently objectionable. The problem is how who, uh, how are people who are privileged use their privileges? Uh, and I think that uh, study of those characters uh, is important, is useful for that effect. Um, but those uh, characters uh, uh, weren't in the book at the time because I had already sort of set the structure of the book. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to also writing something about Captain Marvel next year when the uh, movie comes out. Uh, uh, already got uh, something in mind for that too. But right, Wonder Woman. Um, uh, and right, Flash. I mean, Mar once you get to Martian Manhunter, now immediately, although he's been appearing in the Supergirl television show, which I at least enjoyed the first season of. 
Um, and that's fantastic to see. But again, the, the, the book was sort of well underway by the time I might have considered Martian Manhunter, let alone Miss Martian or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Um, okay, why don't we, why don't we uh, look at a couple of the um, contests uh, specifically? Is there any you want to start with? Um, or we can just start no. with Hulk. You, why don't we do Hulk versus Wolverine? Whatever interests you most. Yeah, let's do Hulk versus Wolverine. Wolverine was one of my favorite characters uh, when I was a kid because I was really into X-Men. Uh, that right. was that was my uh, focus in the world of mid '90s comics, um, and every so every, so probably so Wolverine, Hugh Jackman plays him in the X Men movies and all these other uh, associated movies. So probably people know the character basically, and uh, the Hulk is probably one of the most iconic comic book characters, and everyone knows who who he is um, as well. Um, yeah. So what what are their what are their virtues and moral failings? Right. Well, you folk, you you brought up uh, anger. Right, and everybody knows that the Hulk uh, gets more powerful the angrier that Hulk gets. And uh, you know, at the beginning of the old 1970s TV show, you know, they would focus on the word anger at the beginning of the the theme, and then they'd zoom out, and it would be the uh, part of the word danger. Uh, uh, and so that's a major theme in Hulk. But what I decided to focus on was the way in which the Hulk represents our individualism. Because one of the things that the Hulk is repeatedly saying is Hulk just wants to be left alone. Right? Which is to me more interesting than the, uh, the Hulk has to struggle with his anger. Um, because we live in a sort of individualistic liberal society in which, uh, for many good reasons, uh, we've learned to emphasize uh, our, our private lives and our private rights. Uh, we see ourselves as engaged in voluntary associations, whether at the level of society or the level of the state, uh, that uh, we enter into as uh, individuals by nature. Uh, we have our own goals. We're not bound uh, by... Uh, uh, we're not we're not born to particular stations in our lives, but we see ourselves as having social mobility as individuals. Um, but it's also the case that, uh, and, and I saw one of your recent interviews. You had a guest on talking about the homebodies economy. Mm-hmm. Remember, right? Yeah. Uh, in, increasing tendency to uh, to retreat into ourselves and our, our own lives, even if we live through our virtual friendships on our devices. Um, the ability to, you know, suppose and the degree to which our culture and our policies sort of encourage us to think of ourselves as principally individuals. Uh, and to go from a live and let live, I mean, live and let live is great so that we're not, you know, persecuting heretics or something, you know, out of, you know, the presumption that somehow we're supposed to meddle in everybody's lives in every way, uh, in order to make them, uh, you know, better uh, to save their souls or something, right? The doctrine of toleration was founded in early modern thought for good reason. Uh, but at its excesses, individualism, this sort of, uh, gets to the idea that, you know, if only, if only I could be totally left alone and I didn't have any obligations to anybody else and nobody had, had any expectations of me, uh, then I could do whatever I wanted and enjoy whatever I wanted and would never be bothered. And then we get to the, how dare anybody interfere with my life or try to, uh, meddle with my life in any way. Uh, sort of attitude that taken to an extreme gets to the, uh, you know, the Hulk-like quality of um, not only uh, leave me alone, um, but uh, the other part of it is the Hulk's always is talking about how he's the strongest one there is and taking great umbrage whenever anybody 
uh, you know, challenges his strength, which I metaphorically read as a tendency of the isolated individual to also, uh, sort of in a sort of tyrannical way, demand, uh, super, you know, respect for their superlative qualities. You know, everybody is, everybody's got to be recognized as, as awesome as they think themselves to be, uh, with the, or else often being appended to it. How dare you not acknowledge me for being as great as I am? Uh, because anytime anybody might criticize you or suggest that you might live differently, it is a suggestion that you're not only not as good as you could be and should be for yourself, but that somebody else knows better than you who you should be. And that uh, violates our egalitarian individualism and people get outraged by that. And I think we see online an awful lot of that sort of how dare you criticize me? Uh, how dare you not take me to be as awesome as I say I am? And yeah, so I that- think may- maybe the Hulk is the patron saint of Twitter. Um, right. Because people like to get, I mean, people go on Twitter in order to get angry because for some people it feels really good to be angry and righteously angry. And then they, la- and then they lash out and then they go back to their, I assume they go back to their everyday lives. Maybe they're still angry. Maybe the anger is in flush from them and they're like Bruce Banner returning to everyday life and the Hulk is their like online persona. That's right. I mean, Aristotle points out that mildness is his virtue and, and mildness is how you deal with things that would make you angry. It's not never being angry. It's the right amount of anger under the circumstances that helps you deal well with the situation that angers you. Um, and there can be deficiencies and there can be excesses in this, but there's uh, like every virtue, there's a, you know, Aristotle would say there's a pleasure that comes with uh that uh that virtue or uh in uh, the way in which we try to deal with that part of our soul uh or the situations in our lives that affect that part of our soul and so getting angry in the right way uh is pleasurable uh and and especially when you can succeed at acting in response to that anger uh that that success brings you pleasure Dealing well with the things that anger you is a pleasurable thing. Now, of course, the way we feel anger and the way we react to anger, the way we assess how angry we should be given a situation is something that uh, external forces can influence us and shape us. And we can be cultivated poorly with respect to this part of our soul. We can be made to be much too outraged by too many things too easily, too readily, and then to savor uh, that anger too much and then more to take a great pride in and uh, and pat oneself on the back uh, excessively for the successes in reacting and destroying or demolishing, or as the Hulk would have it, smashing those who made you angry. And so there is a tendency, I think, for people to feel pleased with themselves for getting excessively outraged, especially if their outrage destroys the object of their outrage. Um, and yeah, Twitter doesn't help us uh, in that regard very well. Wolverine, I don't know if I uh, just as a counterpart. Well, let me. Wolverine. I have a one, just one oh. Hulk Hulk note to make. Um, you know, I was thinking of. I guess I hadn't. You know, the Hulk sense of isolation, like in the like the '70s version of Hulk, it was kind of like he was going around the country and like you know helping people out and stuff. Um, I was thinking. What, what you said remind me of the um now I've got the lonely man theme going on on my back of my head <laughs> as as David Banner hitchhikes down the street <laughs> right right yeah he was David Banner in that version for some reason um but the uh the the Hulk movie that Ang Lee made that came out around two thousand two or two or so 
Um, it has it was, a pointed out poodle in it. Yes. <laughs> it was a strange movie. It was strange for Ang Lee, who had like directed Sense and Sensibility or something, to make this superhero Hulk movie, and it didn't get. This was before they like launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe or whatever with um, Iron Man, so it was kind of just like forgotten, and I, I don't think it was a it was a blockbuster. Um, but the it, it was very striking visually, and the the thing that there's two scenes that were became like semi iconic one was the one the dream where Bruce Banner is just took a shower and the the mirror is fogged over and he wipes it with his hand and on the other side is the hulk and the hulk is just using one giant finger to to wipe it um so you know he's he's seeing the hulk within and then but then the other one was the um the CGI scene of him, he's like in the Southwest desert somewhere and he's like bounding from giant rock to giant rock and like soaring through the air. And this was like impressive computer graphics for 2002 or whatever, but it also was just kind of like thrilling visually to like see this, you know, giant figure uh, who's human, but not human. And he's like over, overleaping, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in a certain way. But so it maybe so the Hulk wants to be, he wants to be by himself, but like he wants to be by himself because he can't be in a city. Because if he's in a city and becomes the Hulk, then he kills people and destroys buildings and causes havoc. So it's like he wants to. He, it's a, it's like self abdication to for the Hulk to be left alone. In the original comic, um, he is irradiated by gamma rays because he's trying to work at a nuclear test site. And he tries to save some kid who like wanders into the test site who later becomes a psychic kind of. Um, so it's like a self. He is like a selfless act. And, um, and then he's like cursed with this, uh, with this, you know, power that, you know, makes him super strong, but he doesn't, you know, he just wants to be Bruce Banner. He doesn't want to be the Hulk. They change the character multiple times. Sometimes he's always, sometimes he's, he's smart. Sometimes he's stupid. Sometimes he's always the Hulk. Other times he's gray. But in the original conception, it's like, it is like a tragic, (laughs) tragic tale. Trying to find the ethical core of a character is difficult when they go through so many iterations over the decades. And a character like the Hulk is especially needful of this because the the the, um, the concept's so f- basic, right? So I think in order to keep the stories fresh, they're always you know uh, coming at it with a different angle. Um, I don't know if it was entirely selfless. In my argument, uh, Bruce Banner sort of when he saw uh, Rick Jones uh, at the bomb site just about at the time of the detonation might have then finally realized what he had done. I point out the, the, the sort of the problem that technology poses for us ethically is a recurring theme in the book. And it sort of first emerges in my discussion of the Hulk. Uh, Bruce Banner kind of also represents the scientific person that is um, extraordinary when it comes to thinking about the theoretical side of things, but sometimes uh, can be on the oblivious side when it comes to the practical uh, consequences or implications of the very things that their inventiveness and their their uh, their brilliance uh, can generate a sort of uh, character type that Sheldon has made uh, very familiar I think on uh, on the TV in recent years um, and uh, I think Bruce Banner finally had a sort of moment of insight that oh my god this thing might kill people you know this bomb that was designed to kill kajillions of people might actually kill someone. Uh, and was confronted with that sort of uh, shock uh, that uh, when you read histories of the Manhattan Project, uh, you get accounts of some of the scientists that developed the first atomic bomb were surprised to find it would actually get used uh, and appalled. Um, you know, this was just a really interesting physics problem that we all got these geniuses together to solve, wasn't it? Uh, in the middle of wartime, uh, at least, you know, uh, 
the, the Ang Lee version is interesting to me because part of what happened, in, especially in the uh, 1980s to 90s run of the Hulk, was to try to absolve Bruce Banner of responsibility. So this uh, saying it's his dad's fault that he turned out this way. Uh, uh, or, um, you know, he, he's a sickly child uh, who is in isolation tense as a baby and things like this. All these things go to explaining why he has this character uh, and therefore you can't p- blame him for Hulk. What became more interesting in, in more recent Hulk comics is Bruce Banner taking responsibility more for himself and refusing to uh, accept, you know, multiple personality, per- multiple personality theories in order to uh, uh, render himself uh, not responsible and instead uh, to take full responsibility. That's another recurring theme in superhero ethics is, uh, how superhero stories are, are one of the, uh, remain one of the parts of our culture that still emphasize responsibility as a theme, uh, emphasize individual responsibility, individual, uh, interpersonal responsibility, how we treat each other, how we come to each other's aid, uh, and try to take care of our, our neighborhoods to use the word that Spider-Man, uh, always brings to mind. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had the thought too, while reading it, you know, these, um, these characters, uh, you know, they didn't need to don the mantle of a secret identity and use it to fight crime and villains and try to, you know, make the world better. Like, that was, that was a choice. They could have just done whatever. Uh, maybe the, the Hulk is kind of an exception because his powers are, like, out of control. But, um, you know. I end up you, saying that Bruce Banner's more of a hero than the Hulk is. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's you know, and then compared to maybe some of the like virtues uh, that we exalt today, it's not always uh, selflessness and putting others first. Okay, so why, why don't we go to Wolverine, your the character that you contrast with the Hulk? Right, I I talk about how as animalistic Wolverine is. He reminds us that one of the things that makes us distinctively human is our concern for honor. Uh, and Wolverine in particular is sort of uh, ill fit within modern uh, liberal democratic technological commercial society where we have deliberately suppressed concerns for honor, which again is a good thing because you know we don't want to be having duels in the streets over the slightest slight. Uh, and we do tend to find that codes of honor tend to be extremely inegalitarian uh, and allow for uh, all kinds of systems of domination to be uh, uh, imposed and sustained unjustly. Um, and we recognize that codes of honor are conventional. You know, they're, they're part of our society that is socially constructed. Uh, and so um, there are a number of reasons why modern, modern society uh, has sort of uh, tried to uh, treat considerations of honor as less important to us as, as a vanity or things that we shouldn't take so seriously. But we can't get rid of these concerns in our lives, concerns about uh, integrity, duty, um, uh, uh, reputation, recognition. These are all parts of the intangible goods that human beings are sort of say naturally concerned with even if all of our standards of those are artificial wolverine starts looking for other kinds of societies that still take codes of honor seriously that's why he's always going up to the wilderness and the arctic 
where there are tribes of people who still have honor codes that are significant for governing their ways of life or going to Japan, which in our imagination retains this sort of mythological quality as the society of honor and nobility, uh, even if uh, historical Japan at its worst at its worst uh, uh, is, is, uh, is is something that the West has long uh, used as an example of of, of uh, honor codes. Uh, uh, the tendency of societies to governed by honor codes to become uh, scary in different ways, um, and so, but 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 still, you know, uh, those kinds of societies have a certain appeal to us uh, that uh, that speak to the fact that this part of our soul has been suppressed, uh, and and Wolverine reminds us of how important it is to. Uh, to, to to keep these considerations in mind and not merely be hedonistic, not merely only seeking advantage and profit as commercial society would encourage us to. Um, and so uh, that's a theme that I think is important to Wolverine. Now, of course, uh, as I was saying, you know, uh, consideration for honor can be excessive as well. And I also like to use the Internet example, as I did with the Hulk, with Wolverine, as Wolverine is principally motivated to to defend his tribe, the mutants, who are always feared and hated and under attack and and, uh, at the uh, risk of existential threat. And so Wolverine's uh, concerns, I think, are mirrored today in the ways in which people not only have that reaction on social media, which is, I demand to be recognized as as awesome as I am. Um, but the and how dare you uh, deny me my superlative adjectives? Uh, but rather the how dare you um, pose a threat to uh, my group or the groups that I uh, defend, and to stand for the honor of uh, a a group that is in need of defending uh, is something that Wolverine represents, and I think one of the reasons why he remains as appealing as he is, despite the evident, let's say, toxic masculinity that oozes from his every pore uh, in his uh, extremely hirsute body, yes. Right. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, So, yeah, so Wolverine is a a mutant and he's a member of the X-Men and so he's, uh, you know, an outsider in the world of Marvel Comics. The populace is scared of mutants and um, doesn't, you know, sometimes tries to like genetically reprogram, reprogram them or send them to like an island or something so we don't have to deal with them. Uh, so yeah, so the outcast. When I was, I, I kind of stopped reading comic books around right, right before they did the like, they explained the origin of Wolverine. So through my childhood, he was this mysterious character. You, usually you, uh, in comic books, you see the origin of a character right away. Uh, Wolverine, they didn't explain the origin. Uh, for, uh, you know, decades. And it turned out that, like, he's, you know, 300 years old or something. So he has these, so he has, like, old fashioned values because he was born in, like, 1800. And, um, he, uh. Right, he comes, he comes from a different era of Canadians. Right. Of, so he's not, yeah, he's not American. Uh, beer, he's beer drinking, body checking, uh, tree cutting, wilderness braving. Uh, Canadians and not the sort of Canadian that our current prime minister. Can- <laughs> right. So you're, you're, you're broadcasting from inside, uh, uh, the nation of Canada, um, right now. Um, yeah, it is interesting to think why exactly, um, was it Claremont, Chris Claremont who created 
Wolverine, why why they decided to make him Canadian? Um, well, Claremont didn't create him, um, but Claremont, uh, the the sort of Claremont Byrne era of Uncanny X Men, sort of really popularized him. Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. He actually he appeared first in a Hulk comic, if I'm not mistaken, um, and. Yeah, so he had this outsider. Uh, he, you know, he had this, he has this funny hair. He's short, which makes you know, in most of these uh, comic book characters, the guys are all like uh, six foot two, and Wolverine is short. And then he has his adamantium uh, skeleton and claws, and his his mutant powers is healing factor. Um, so you find out at some point that he, um, you know, he wasn't born with um, adamantium claws. He was born with bone claws, and the adamant he was subjected to a um, scientific experiment called Weapon X, and they gave him this unbreakable skeleton. So the other thing about him is he, um, you know, like you can't keep him down. Like you can throw whatever at him, and he'll still keep on going because of his skeleton and his healing. Um, so he'll he's it, so, so pairing him with the Hulk is interesting because I think I'm sure at some point they they were matched up for a fight or something, and like you know, no matter how many times the Hulk smashes Wolverine, he's still like he's still ticking. Um, I think the yeah the ethic the, the kind of idea that he um, you know he's kind of like a the, the the character type is like a cowboy like a lone cowboy or like the samurai or something in those Japanese stories kind of some maybe even had samurai in the, in the title um, but he yeah he kind of, he sometimes he'll just like he has a motorcycle and and he'll just like go away from the X Men and he's like done done with them for a while and needs to like retreat <laughs> into the woods of Canada and. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I think it is it is an interesting example of like the, you know, he's kind of roguish and but he uh, also has like a moral core to him, and you know, you want you definitely want to be his friend. You don't want, you don't want to get on his bad side. Um, yeah, there's 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 never a time Wolverine's walked into a bar that didn't result in a brawl. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he. Yeah. So he has some anger issues. Also, clearly, <laughs> we uh, pairing him with with the Hulk. Now, um, the the points you brought up are interesting. I mean, he's both. Um, you can say he's a victim of both nature and nurture. Uh, he's somebody who is sort of born into uh, circumstances uh, with his uh, unusual condition that's going to make him an outcast, put him at dis- in a disadvantage in that way. Uh, his family situation in his childhood is not good. Uh, um, and, uh, and, uh, throughout his life, he's always you know, looking for a community, uh, to belong to, but he can't really belong for long. So he's always having to leave and, 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 and find a new place or return later. Um, but right, this, this idea that he's been a victim of all kinds of mistreatment. People have meddled with his body and his mind so repeatedly uh, that uh, and he's been people have used him for their own purposes in terrible ways many times that uh, it's, it's interesting that he's the character who has sort of integrity as a theme because his body and mind have been destroyed and rebuilt mm. times. It's hard to know who the real him is. And this has been part of his story. He even, he doesn't know who the real, right. Yeah. So is. his mind was wiped at some point and he doesn't remember his real he's name. Been, he's been, yeah, he's been uh, meddled with, let's say uh, physically, mentally many times. Yeah. So kind of like a Jason Bourne, you know, it's a similar you know, theme. In the Logan movie, which is excellent, uh, he tells his clone daughter, Laura, uh, don't 
you know, don't be what they made you, which I think is an important ethical theme that Wolverine represents. A lot of superheroes have this in their, in, in their, in them because they often have some sort of tragic past or they were the victim of some mistreatment or some misfortune and they have to learn to nevertheless take responsibility for themselves and become the best version that they can be of themselves. And that involves coming to the aid of others. Uh, both like themselves and not in order to be the best, uh, most responsible version of themselves. And Wolverine really represents that to a great degree, given how much he's been a victim of over the course of his life and how other people have tried to define him. And he refuses to be uh, what other people have tried to make him into. And he refuses to be defined by the ways in which other people have abused him. Now, the healing factor is interesting, though, because as, as sort of all these ways in which Wolverine is, is representing parts of the human condition that modern society has suppressed, uh, our animalistic side and our concern for honor, um, uh, all, all that, uh, right, I mean, he does, he does uh, sort of pander to our modern desire for uh, invulnerable bodies or the capacity to heal from anything, our sort of infatuation with medical technology and our desire for medicine to be able to save us from anything and everything, our hope and expectation uh, that uh, we, we, sh- we should not be uh, vulnerable to suffering from illness, disease and wounds. Um, Wolverine, uh, you know, sort of appeals to us precisely because he doesn't suffer in these ways. Of course, one could reflect then maybe that this is uh, something that compromises his courage, though, since in the end, it's, uh, he, he must know how hard he is to kill. Right. Although it, it's, it's made clear that, um, he feels the pain, he feels the pain. So it's not like Superman where the bullets bounce off his chest and it's nothing. And I'm somebody who understands sort of, uh, what needs to have to deal with pain every day and that, and, and, uh. And every time it, he, um, once it's revealed that, you know, the claws are, uh, like part of his, you know, um, skeletal structure, whenever he pops them out, he feels them popping out. It's just that the skin heals instantly. And, um, so yeah, so he's, he's, he suffers. Uh, he, yeah, he's definitely one of the most like suffering of, of the like big super superheroes. Um, why don't we Why don't we jump to a different pairing, and that would be um, Batman versus Spider Man. Sure. Um, so the yeah. So the so the kind of th- one thematic link between these two characters. I mean, they're, they're both iconic, uh, but they both are very heavily identified with uh, specific cities. New York City for Spider Man, the imaginary Gotham City, um, kind of based on New York City uh, for, for Batman. So what do you yeah? So what are the what are the virtues of, of these two iconic characters? Well, I look at them as asking what kind of rep- what kind of um, relationship should we have and responsibility do we have to our communities. Right. And so if Hulk and Wolverine especially represent our the idea that you'd have to. Well, right. On the extremes of the book, the old Aristotelian idea that you'd have to be a a god or a beast to be self-sufficient. So I deal with beast like characters in the first chapter and god like characters in the final chapter. Um, But uh, if we're if we're social animals, what 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 do we what's our proper relationship to and and how should we uh, take responsibility for our place in our communities? Um, And Spider-Man and Batman are interesting to compare because Batman, as it were, comes up from uh, the cave from below. Uh, Spider-Man descends from the skies, as it were, on his web lines or on lamp posts. 
Uh, and, uh, however, Batman, um, is the kind of person who represents the, um, uh, the aspiration to, uh, through the imposition of our, our willpower, our righteous intentions, our technological means to uh, try to uh, willfully impose a rational and moral order on our communities from above uh, to try to uh, combat the apparent inherent chaotic or tragic nature that uh, spontaneously left of themselves they inevitably devolve into and and, and continue to uh, to represent. Uh, if Batman had the powers of of uh, of a Superman, it would be hard for a Batman to resist uh, trying to uh, reorder the world. Uh, and uh, a recent story actually published last month had Superman uh, offer Superman powers to Batman to see if he would take them, and Batman sort of knows better than to take them, even though he knows. Uh, there have been other stories in which sort of Batman uh, admits that if he had Superman's powers, he would impose a order on the world. Um, but he, but he's glad that he doesn't have them. Uh, and so uh, this this desire for rational control and the idea that we could impose a moral order on society if only we had the resolve to do so um, by someone that intelligent. Uh, and, and that, with, with that, that, that much means at his disposal. Um, Batman represents that. Where, where Spider-Man actually represents, um, the sort of idea that, uh, instead of a top-down uh, attitude towards society, we, 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 society is formed from the bottom up. Uh, that it falls to each of us to the best of our ability with, uh, the powers that we have, and Spider-Man has these extraordinary powers, but I tend throughout superhero ethics to read superpowers metaphorically. You know, how do they represent actual abilities that actual human beings have, or at least wish they had? Um, but uh, how do we use the extraordinary abilities that we as human beings have in our neighborhoods, in our communities, to the best of our ability, uh, and on a case-by-case basis, as it were, uh, with with as much resolve as possible, it requires a bit of guilty conscience in Peter Parker's case, especially uh, to overcome the uh, tendencies in our culture to uh, to to convince people that they should just take care of themselves instead, and that would be fine. Um, but right to take sort of uh, responsibility for oneself without trying to take total responsibility uh, for everybody else for their own good. And so I, I contrast those two heroes in that way. Yeah, I think this is this. For, I, I found this um, this comparison or this you know pairing the most uh, interesting in the just the differences between these two characters and the similarities. So they're both um, you know a bat and a spider, are both kind of like vermin characters. So they have they have that in common. Um, I think uh, yeah. So on the out of the ten, you have a Batman. You know, Batman doesn't have any supernatural or like extra normal powers in, in uh, the reality of the comics. He is just like the, he's really, really smart and he's trained his body to be like the ultimate in, um, you know, like human perfection. And he, uh, but he doesn't have, he can't fly or, you know, breathe underwater or run super fast or anything. Like he, he is still a man. Um, you know, whereas the, the other, these other characters have, uh, powers that, um, couldn't exist in this world, you know, but you know, no one could actually be Batman, but you could kind of like place yourself 
you see yourself and like, well, he's just this guy who like worked really, really hard at working out and figuring stuff out and he, you know, has all these inventions and stuff. Um, and yeah, so, and then, you know, what is Spider-Man's like appellation is, um, he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh, Batman, <laughs> definitely not friendly. Uh, he doesn't have a specific neighborhood. He's, he's all of Gotham, whereas like, you know, Bat- Spider-Man is kind of like, he's, he grew up in Queens, you know, this real place versus Gotham, this total imaginary, this imaginary place that's like a scarier version of, of New York City. Um, and yeah, so, and, and Spider, and Batman is like really serious, usually. I mean, there's different versions of the character, but, but kind of humorless and, and when, when he does When he does tell jokes, most of his jokes have as their punchline, remember how smart I am? Right. So uh, that's pretty, every joke he tells reminds you that he's smarter than you. Right. And, and the, the recent, the Christopher Nolan trilogy of Batman movies are grim and gritty, not funny. Um, th- there was more silliness associated with the character before with the Tim Burton and the Adam West. Um, and that, so Spider-Man is like, he quips and he tells jokes and, you know, they're silly and he, he'll tell a joke as he's punching someone, punching a villain out or something. And, um, he, yeah, so he's, uh, you know, kind of like a, a child, teenager, young adult, uh, usually, and he kind of retains that youthfulness. Whereas, uh, Batman, like his central, you know, the character was created with, through childhood trauma, um, yeah. of the, of, of the par- parents being killed in front of him. And then there's also the, the trauma of Uncle Ben being killed and Spider-Man not stopping him. So there's all these interesting, like, some commonalities, some contrasts. Uh, the other, the, just the last thing I would mention is, um, you know, I think Batman has the the best like um, villain pairing uh, in comics um, because he's paired with uh, the Joker as his chief villain, and um, the Joker is, uh, you know, <laughs> everything. Life is a joke to him, but also he's kind of like the, um, you know, there was a line that became kind of famous from the second Nolan Batman movie that, like, there's some men who just want to watch the world burn. And that kind of, like, nihilism and um, insanity <laughs> contrasts very, very well with the, like, ultra-rational, like, logical detective of of Batman. So you have, you know, rationality posed with irrationality. I, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the best, like, thematic contrast in between hero yeah. and villain in comics. I mean, I talked about sort of looking at them from a social political perspective, but if we look at them from the point of view of you know, the cosmic perspective of uh, what is the universe really like? In a certain sense, both Spider-Man and Batman are premised on the idea that uh, naturally the cosmos is tragic. Uh, how do we react to this? And I see Batman is representing the attitude that we see in early modern thought, especially in the likes of someone like a Francis Bacon, the founder of the technological project, philosophically, let's say, or one of the founders, um, uh, that uh, the, the, the universe uh, doesn't have final and formal causes in it. It doesn't have purposes, uh, but it has a certain kind of impersonal order to it that we can rationally uh, understand. And then if we impose our wills upon it creatively, we can then reorder the world uh, rationally. Uh, And so despite the fact that it's got this sort of tragic basis, uh, which whether it's in your Francis Bacon, your Machiavelli, or your Hobbes, you see as a premise, uh, uh, you see, but nevertheless, uh, it's got enough reason 
it's got enough order to it that we can apply a reason to it and reorder it and then establish the possibility of justice. We can fix the world uh, with our reason. Uh, where I see Spider-Man as representing the idea that the most rational way to deal with uh, the recognition that the universe is tragic is to reconcile ourselves to it. Um, and only then is the possibility of comedy arise. Comedy and tragedy are parasitical on each other, flip sides of the same thing. Uh, and so I think it's suitable that Spider-Man is the most comical of the superheroes because that's how uh, uh, someone from a tradition that recognizes the tragedy of the universe and the impossibility of human beings uh, to uh, rationally fix it, have to reconcile themselves to it. Uh, and therefore, wit is essential to civility. Wit is essential to happiness. Wit is essential to as much justice as we can have among ourselves in this world that will never be perfectly just. And that's why I think, uh, however, Joker is a, a well paired with Batman. Um, because when you're the kind of person that believes that we could and should have a perfectly just order, all we have to do is want it enough and and try hard enough. And if only we wanted it enough, had enough imagination, tried hard enough, then we could finally fix everything and there'd be no more tragedy and there'd be no more suffering and there'd be no more injustice. When you're that kind of person, they tend not to be, well, they tend to be humorless. Uh, they tend to be more outraged by any attempt at humor, right? Jokes become offenses, uh, inherently objectionable. Uh, if only, uh, people were got on board with the project and put all of their own energies into fixing things like we know they can and should be, then we'd have it fixed by now. And so, uh, uh, humor becomes an affront, uh, when you're determined to, uh, fix everything. Um, because it, uh, it represents uh, a lack of faith in our ability to uh, control, master, fix everything, set everything right. Uh, now, Joker uh, represents an excess of this, of course, right? He represents the partial truth that Batman's uh, uh, perspective leaves out and then takes it to an extreme where he doesn't just make jokes uh, like, Sp like Spider-Man does, but he becomes nihilistic, right? And he himself... Uh, takes uh, excessive pleasure in uh, not only witnessing but causing great tragedy and great suffering uh, through his mischief um, as a sort of uh, you know the you know mo the modern technological pro project stands on a sort of nihilistic precipice or an abyss as someone like Nietzsche or Kant uh, recognized uh, and uh, I think Joker represents the person who not only uh, uh, is aware of that. I think Batman's aware of it too, but, uh, uh, revels in it or jumps in the abyss, lives in it, becomes the monster that, that staring into the abyss might make one. Um, and so, uh, that, 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 now that said, there's something extremely comical about Batman as well. The fact that Batman always wins. Right? No, paired with Superman, Batman is Batman and Superman, the world's finest, kind of represent the two theatrical masks of comedy and tragedy, where Batman is the grim, tragic mask and Superman is the smiling uh, uh, mask. But still, there's something extremely comical about Batman and the way in which Batman always wins, uh, even against uh, people who are way more powerful than him. Um, 
And so the you remember even, this even Superman when they fight right, off. Right, yeah, for sure. You know, and the, it's a it's a piety. Who wins any fight? Batman versus blank. The answer is always Batman. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, that's human beings patting themselves on the back because we say he's the most human character, so we want him to win all the time, so that we can believe that we're capable of winning all the time, which is consistent with the conceit that I said Batman represents. Um, so there's something comical about Batman that he always wins. Uh, but also, uh, let's say Sisyphean about it because uh, he always wins, but Gotham City never gets any better. Every every episode of the animated series, every comic book featuring Batman starts off with Gotham as corrupt as it ever was uh, and people's lives in as much danger as they ever were. Uh, and so, um, yeah. Yeah, and the bad guys always manage to break out of Arkham Prison. Um, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the fact that Batman sends them to an asylum rather than to a prison really speaks to this idea that he thinks that our rational techniques should be able to fix everything. You know, the idea that if only we could, you know, medicalize their evil properly and apply the correct psycho psychiatric techniques, uh, then they'd be fixed. Um, is an extreme sort of version of the modern hope that, uh, that reason technology can fix everything uh, rather than you know, Spider-Man just leaves him on the lamppost dangling and webs to be carted away by the very same boys in blue that will shoot at him whenever they happen to see him because they are always the tragic part of Spider-Man is that the, the, he's always, you know, is he a threat or a menace, right? He's very rarely recognized as the hero that he is. Uh, he represents what I say in Plato's Republic, the man of perfect justice who always does the right thing but always gets a reputation for doing the wrong thing. Uh, he tries to stop a bank robbery and he's always accused of being, you know, complicit with, you know, the thief. Yeah, and and uh, J. Jonah Jameson, the <laughs> editor of the Daily Bugle, is the one who, um, you know, wants photos of Spider-Man and wants to always portray him as a menace. There's one other kind of um, theme between these two characters that I want to touch on briefly, which is um, the, the, like, family ties. So th they're both orphans. Um, uh, Batman, uh, young Bruce Wayne, watches his parents be murdered, and that's what sets him uh, into his life as a superhero. And, and you know, he's, like, raised by his butler alfred we can guess i don't know of any other relatives in the in the wayne family who helped him out um spider-man is introduced as being raised by his aunt and uncle um and his uh he like inadvertently causes his uncle's murder by not stopping a uh robber when he when he had the chance so then his, his central um family connection is to aunt may um, and he has to make sure Ant-Man doesn't find out who he really is. Uh, and he, the other, the like other, besides the tragedy of Uncle Ben, the other great tragedy that happens in the initial run is um, his girlfriend is killed, uh, Gwen Stacy. And he plays a part in that as well because uh, the, the um, uh, green goblin thro throws her into, you know, into the river and he shoots a web out to try to catch her and it like, uh, causes her to uh, snap her neck back and uh, she dies. Um, and who is the Green Goblin? It's the father of his best friend. Um, so the kind of, you know, every, everything connected to him, the, the, the people most closely connected to him, either by like family, friendship, or love, uh, you know, all of these tragic dimensions to them. And then as, you know, as the comic went on, it was, it was, became more and more absurd that you know, he's like living with Aunt May and he, he ends up with a, kind of a happy marriage, uh, to Mary Jane. Um, but 
Yeah, I, th- I do think it's an interesting contrast that like like Batman ends up being an isolated person. Um, you know, he spends his time uh, in the cave. Um, in his when he's in his uh, uh, civilian identity, he's like a playboy, but he he never gets married. I think they just did something where they're like, was he finally going to marry uh, Catwoman? But then I can't. I, I read something that said they <laughs> that they decided not to get married in the end because like <laughs> yeah. as so, it were. Because like, because Bat- could Batman have a wife? It doesn't make sense. But like, Spider Man could have a wife, and di- and as far as I I know, and you know, they reboot these characters so often, still does. Um, the Bat the Batman of Earth Two pre Crisis did marry Catwoman, and he had the most uh, sort of uh, pathetic uh, death of all an ordinary criminal took him down, uh, and uh, I think suggesting that uh, Batman can't be Batman if he. If he if he knows love, uh, <laughs> right? So, yeah. So like, and what, actually, one of the better Batman movies is the uh, animated one from the nineties, uh, the uh, Mask the Phantasm. Oh movies. yes, I do remember that one. And that's the lesson at the end of it that Batman can't be Batman if Batman knows love, um, which might lead us to discussion. I don't uh, of, of Chapter Four where I talk about Mister Fantastic, the superhero who most knows love in his life. Um, and and so on, but uh, right, I, I yeah, um, yeah. Well, we've got about an hour. I don't. Do you want to do one more pairing, or should we should we wrap it up? It's up to you, Arya. At this point, I'm sure anybody who's still watching already also has read all of these stories and is right there with us. And I'm really looking forward. One of the things I like about uh, your website or the comment sections. And uh, comic book readers and fans uh, sort of telling each other why we're wrong is our Olympic sport. So I, <laughs> I'm, I'm forward to seeing uh, all the ways in which your your viewers uh, tell me which issue I forgot in which series that would have uh, proved everything I've said wrong. Right. Well, I have to say there was um, – I did – after Stan Lee died, I had um, G- here of the New Republic on to talk about kind of the origins of uh, Marvel Comics. And did Stan Lee really deserve as much credit as he's gotten – or did Jack Kirby deserve it? And um, I think one of the first comments is something like, oh, why are we talking about these childish things? Like, how about talking about Rousseau or something? So well, so we, we have yeah. both now. We're, we're talking about comic books and we're talking about uh, philosophy. So p- please. My idea here is, I think, you know, uh, a couple of things, both philosophically and sort of politically or from the perspective of cultural criticism. Um, you know, Plato didn't have any problem talking about the Homeric stories when he wanted to go about making his philosophical arguments, he took the myth seriously. These are the stories that the people in the culture that he's addressing uh, think are most important for understanding what's true, what's real, what's admirable, um, what's beautiful. Uh, and if you want to have a discussion with people about these subjects, start where they are. Uh, find out what they care about, what they like, and what they believe in, and have a discussion that starts from those premises, uh, and, 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 and treats them with respect. And insofar as in our culture today, and not, I mean, the superheroes are sort of an American, principally American cultural invention, but they obviously speak to, uh, the human condition more generally for them to take off as a global phenomenon of it even before the movies, but now especially with the movies. Uh, and they do tell us stories about right and wrong. They do tell us stories about who should be our role models and who should we imitate, uh, who should we admire. What what would we be like if only we were, uh, you know, if we if we used the powers that we have uh, in, in 
in, in ways that we, we forget to uh, and neglect. Um, and so stories about heroes are, are always uh, uh, central to understanding any culture and its values uh, and its uh, uh, likely trajectory to understand what's admirable about it and what's flawed about it. And so um, I, I think that uh, doing this isn't just merely, uh, you know, I mean, it, it is fun to go to the comic store on a Wednesday and have an argument over a writer or an artist or uh, who would win a fight between characters. Um, but I, Superhero Ethics was written based on the idea that, uh, you know, we make a mistake if, we neglect even what look like um, merely uh, juvenile amusements as unimportant uh, and just popcorn uh, fun, um, you know, to totally surrender the, or to totally neglect or surrender the analysis of popular culture artifacts to those who have the power to manufacture them or uh, others who would interpret them uh, I think is a mistake uh, if you want to uh, take seriously, try to understand uh, how children are being raised or what people think is important in life or uh, who they would, I mean, we, people still contain within them the impulse to be heroic or if not to be heroic themselves, to admire her heroes or to give great power to those who presume to be heroes. And so I think that it's it's uh, not uh, entirely frivolous to ask these kinds of questions of these characters and ask what they represent in our lives and our society. Yeah, I, I fully endorse that. Um, I, one, in this previous episode, looking back on Lee's legacy, and if we take Lee, Kirby, and Dicko as a one unit in the way that we would talk about the Beatles or something, um, you know, I think they're I think that unit is comparable to uh, Greek and Roman myths and Shakespeare and. Um, the Bible, what, in terms of like how creating these characters that embody ideas that are like readily, readily interpretable by like later generations. Um, I, I you know, we keep on, we keep on returning to these, we keep on returning to Shakespeare, we keep on returning to the Greek myths. <laughs> I think we're going to keep on returning to Spider-Man and Iron Man, um, for, for a long time as well. And a lot of people who went into the business of telling these stories, whether as writers or artists, were well read. Uh, whether it's in classical literature or biblical traditions or histories and mythologies, etc. And they put these to use. Sure, they told stories that could be accessible uh, as children's literature originally, let's say, or predominantly. But even then, we know that it was always the case that you know uh, children's literature would often contain elements that only the adults get. Uh, and... Uh, and and are and are when well re well written uh, are intended to communicate insights that children can't understand directly but might absorb and comprehend uh, through metaphor through story through narrative. Uh, and I think that in many ways, as enlightened as we've become in the 21st century, there are ways in which uh, people in past generations were in some ways better educated to history to the classical literature. And uh, the, the authors, the creators of these stories uh, were familiar with these traditions, and they counted on, I think, even their audience being familiar with them, too. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I tend to find this all the time looking at various popular culture artifacts from the post-war era, that they look like they're naive, they look like they're simple, they look like they're 
squeaky clean. But you scratch the surface on them a little bit. My wife and I were listening to Buddy Holly music recently, and I can't believe how dark Buddy Holly music is. It's very dark. It sounds like it's happy and chirpy and it's got a, you know, but the, the messages in those songs are, are dark, uh, and, uh, disturbing. Um, and, and, and a lot of pop culture artifacts have that quality. Uh, you, you watch stand up comedy, uh, from the era before Saturday Night Live, uh, and the degree of, uh, literacy that the material could depend upon the, uh, watch, watch stand up comics on the, uh, Tonight Show and the Johnny Carson years. And the amount of cultural literacy that the comics expected their audience to have in order to get smart jokes was so far in excess of what comedians in the post or 90s, post 90s era depend on. We can't depend on anybody knowing anything anymore sometimes. <laughs> right? Uh, right. Well, I guess the, 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 the complaint would be like, well, people, all people know about are Star Wars and Harry Potter and, um, and Spider-Man and stuff. But you know, this is this is not an original sentiment. Like this is this is the modern mythology that you know, like draws the culture together. Like okay, maybe people aren't uh, reading the romantic poets in the way they would have, you know, fifty years ago. Um, but there's other like commonalities of culture um, that draw people together, and like there's a reason <laughs> that, that uh, Harry Potter is pretty much universally beloved. I mean, people, it's it's for children. People read it as children, and then it, stay, it stays with them because they have a nostalgic um, affection for it. But it's you know, there's stuff there for adults as well, and uh, you know, it's people people can really really identify with with these things. I think online has helped that, where people can say like you know, put in their Facebook or Twitter bio that they're a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw or whatever. And that gives them like a sense of, um, self, you know, self-definition and solidarity with other people out there who also think that they're a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw. And, you know, the way that people, I mean, when I, when I first started reading comics was, it was before the, it was slightly before the internet era. So maybe like 92 or 93. And it was, I, like one of my friends read comics also. And when I would go to the comic store, my, my other friends would kind of be like, oh, he's doing this stupid thing. He's going to the comic store. You know, we got, we got to wait for him outside because we don't want to go to the comic book store. Um, and then, you know, the first like online community one I participated in when I was like 12 or 13 was, uh, an X-Men, uh, bulletin board on AOL. Uh, and I like, uh, you know, <laughs> made some friends there who I've actually, uh, like we connected on Facebook, like, tw- uh, you know, 10, 15 years later. Um, so yeah, these things, <laughs> these things are cultural commonalities. Um, there's a lot of silly parts <laughs> about, about, uh, superheroes and comic books, but, nope, uh, nope, we're allowed to have fun and, and even philosophy shouldn't be totally humorless. Right. Okay. Why don't we, I think that's, a, that's a better point to end on than, um, going through another pairing. So people will have to buy the book if they want, if they want to get the full serving of, um, five matchups, uh, of 10 characters analyzed total. And then in the final chapter, you decide which characters kind of ethics and morals and perspective is the most most worthy to um, emulate and and think about, and I was surprised by which one that was. So people have to read it so to, was find, I. to find out. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, uh, so superhero ethics, uh, Travis Smith. Thank you for coming on. Is there? Do you have a, a website or a Twitter or something that you want to uh, direct people towards if they're interested in finding out more about your work? No, I don't social media. Okay, well maybe that is 
<laughs> another point of wisdom in favor of people checking out the book. <laughs> um, so, uh, but thank you for coming on. Um, thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for having me on the show. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.